You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Vince Pissarro on the show with me. He has an amazing new book. It's called Crazy Sorrow. And this book is such a journey. When when you crack open and you fall into the story with these characters and realize that you are in uh, – it, it's you're in for such a treat. It's one of those books that – that you don't want to end. You want to keep following these characters for as long as you can. Uh, the book is available everywhere today. When you're hearing this, it's book release day. And uh, and we'll put links in the show notes and and also go visit your local bookstores uh, and, and help them out as well. Crazy Sorrow, available everywhere today. Welcome to the show, Vince. Thank you so much, Hank. I'm really uh, uh, pleased and, and privileged to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Vince. We begin each show with the same question, and that question. And I have thought about that. <laughs> well, that's that's fantastic. What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Well, it's an interesting question for me because, or or an intricate answer to that question. Um, I did not have books read to me as a child. My mother was a big reader, and I think her experience was you get old enough to read, you learn to read, and then you go find books, you know. Um, I don't think she was read to as a child, and I wasn't read to as a child. Um, The only book I remember being read to me was the Walt Disney, you know, highly graphic version of Pinocchio. Um, So... I guess my first experience where I was tremendously excited, not just about what I was reading, like the heart, like the Hardy Boys, which I read in huge quantities, but uh, where I was excited by the existence of the writer of the book was, I guess I was maybe 11 or 12, and I read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain, and there's this... Uh, it was the only first book I ever read, and I've only there's only been a couple where I finished the book and then just started up again at the front because I couldn't bear to leave it. <laughs> um, but when Tom Sawyer ends, there's this remarkable sort of afterward, this next page, in which Twain speaks directly to you after being the hand behind what you've been reading and says, well, this is a story of a boy. It's hard to know when to stop the story of a boy, if it was a story of a man, you'd stop at marriage, um, <clears throat> but uh, it's a boy, so we're going to stop here, and that's, you know, and even though I'm not quite sure it's the right place. And this idea of the author being there and making this decision and telling me about it was was very um, exciting for me. I, it, 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 it introduced the idea of authorship. Um, the next thing that happened was I was in ninth grade, and, and I remember 
we were assigned to write a story and it was, it was due Monday and Sunday afternoon came along and we had company over. My cousins were there and my aunt and uncle. And uh, I said, you know, I have to write a story for tomorrow. And I went into my room and my mother had just given me an Olivetti electric typewriter. And um, I sat down and I just wrote the story right at the typewriter, which is how I've worked ever since. And it was a page and a half story about um, a bunch of people on a cable car or tram car crossing a mountain gorge. In other words, high off the ground. And suddenly the car grinds to a halt, stops very suddenly, actually, there's no grinding, it just stops. And everyone wonders what's going on. And this uh, more heroic fellow among them pushes open the trap door on the ceiling and lifts himself up and he can see that the cable is burning. The whole apparatus which is attached to the cable, you know, there are blue flames and sparks. And he drops back down and he says, I don't see anything wrong. I don't know what's the matter. And then they all plunge to their death. It was great. Page and a half. I really enjoyed it. And and I really enjoyed um, the sense of suddenly occupying this, this world, this reality that uh, uh, was entirely inside my head, but nevertheless organized by and, and driven by the presence of these other people um, who were the characters in the story. Um, so those two things, and I, but I still thought I was going to be a lawyer and a politician and, and ultimately run for Congress and Senate. That's what, those were my, I was a big history and politics buff in high school. And then in 12th grade, we got to um, AP English. And uh, in my town, which was on Long Island, the North Shore of Long Island, Great Neck, there was a an independent serious bookstore opened up about maybe my junior year. And um, it was only around for five or six years, but just at the right time for me to discover books in that way. And um, I went there one day and I was very interested in poetry and <clears throat> I, I bought four books of poetry. The a, a book of poetry by Leonard Nimoy, who was Dr. Spock. Sure. A book of poetry by Richard Thomas, who played John Boy, who wanted to be a writer. Uh, and that was influential, too. I, I think about it on the Waltons. I loved the Waltons. I don't know if you or anybody listening is. Oh, yeah. The Waltons. And um, and then I'd heard these other two poets via Bob Dylan song. Um. Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot. And I bought the selected poetry of Ezra Pound and the selected poems of T.S. Eliot. And uh, uh, one was in New Directions, that was Pound, and one was Harcourt Brace, that was Eliot. And I took them home and I started reading them and it became very clear to me that uh, while I didn't get what was going on in Eliot and Pound, they were clearly writers of an entirely different order from Richard Thomas and Leonard Nimoy. And it was a very um, big discovery. And that was the team I wanted to play for, the, the big leagues. So that had a big effect on me, too. Um, so by 12th grade, in freshman year, I was writing poetry. All novelists, no, not all, 
back in the day, most novelists started as bad poets, and uh, <laughs> that's what I was. Well, well, I I think that uh, that stands true today. There, there's still a lot of bad poets out there trying to to find where they, you know, trying to find their literary legs, if you will. Yes, I think I think I don't know why that's where we start. I mean, poetry is not all that accessible and uh, uh, to young people. But it's funny. It's 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 where many of us start. It, it's so funny because uh, poetry does have this this way of um, luring you in uh, mm-hmm. because it, it feels like, uh, and maybe because it's you know really well done poetry hits you uh, on an emotional level and it and it connects deeply with people. Therefore, if you connect deeply with something, it it must be easy to just reach down deep inside yourself and and pull that out and and what what everyone uh, learns very quickly is it's it's not as easy as it looks and oh. and, the, and when it does connect deeply with you you realize that that's the hardest uh, of things and and you know I, I don't know that's that's just my two cents on it well, yeah i think that that's all very true i think it 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 needs to go directly to an emotional, I mean, it can have a narrative, you know, it can be, um, uh, you know, I, I watched her open the blinds and, and think about her day to come. But um, at the same time, it has to get very quickly to a, a deep emotional level. And the other requirement it has that prose does not have on a line by line basis is it has to be beautiful. And um, or it ought to be beautiful, or it strives to be beautiful. Uh, in addition to doing its telling, um, it's actually a, a manipulation of the language. And you can see this visually on a, on a page. The, the language is arranged um, for maximum uh, sort of effect on your ear and on your eye, as well as on your spirit. Um, Frank Kermode, who's a great critic uh, of the middle century, I wrote a great essay that was in Harper's Magazine probably 35 years ago or more. But it it was it was how all of literature starts with sound. Our interest is sound, you know, before meaning comes sound. And I think poetry um, lives up to that obligation in a way that that prose and and dramatic writing uh, don't or can't really. Um, But you know, there are some people who write prose at that level, but not many. So, Vince, from from that uh, that experience in the in, in your senior year of high school, where one moment you uh, wanted to go into politics and study law, and then finding these books of poetry that that then change your life uh, and, and change your trajectory. Um, you have gone on to uh, to write for uh, a, a number of great publications: Harper's Magazine, The Nation, New York Times Sunday Magazine, New York Times Book Review, and and on and on and on. I could read, you know, all day from uh, from your list of credits. Uh, I but used to how... spend all day, <laughs> spend all day writing for those places. I had three kids. I needed to. I needed the money. Back right. then, there was money to be made in writing for magazines. Right. Well, but I did, yes, I wrote a lot of stuff. 
just to, just as a side note, um, you know, since you brought it up, um, how has the industry changed in in that sense? Where you used to could oh. publish essays and and things like that for magazines, there was always a market uh, for short story writers or essayists or you know or whatever. Um, I, I'm assuming that whole landscape has changed this last decade or so. Oh, oh or more. It, it started shrinking even as I got into it. I, I went to graduate school and I got out in 1988 and I started writing for a living by the end of that year, which was quite fortunate. And um, I was writing for, uh, 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 I, I was making, I think, $450 for a book review in a, in a weekly uh, started up in New York called Seven Days. And you couldn't get 450 you know, that's 450 dollars You couldn't get $300 uh, $2,021 to write a book review now anywhere, uh, except for the New York Times, that is to say. Um, and, and maybe and the New Yorker, but those aren't reviews, those are real essays. Um, it's uh, you know it, it's it, the money disappeared and it was starting to shrink. Um, I signed contracts with a number of publications and they all went out of business. It was like the kiss of death, you know. Let's hire Vince for you know to write a piece a month for a year and then they go out of business. Um, and that's starting in you know the early nineties um, because. Uh, the magazines, it's a very complicated situation, not just the internet, it precedes the internet and it has to do with the corporatization of the publishing business, both at the magazine level and the book level, and at the same time, constantly looking to the market to tell you what you ought to publish, which in the market's uh, uh, version that they were studying so carefully, the magazines in the 90s, it was publish less and less words, fewer words, fewer, you know, more pictures, more, uh, you know. So they were letting, you know, their marketing teams sort of change the industry long before the internet came and and brutalized them. But the fact is, um, there was some incident a few years ago where a really seasoned guy, uh, you know, newspaper magazine writer, uh, got solicited to do something for um, one of the publications that that started an online thing, and uh, but was already an existing uh, print publication. And um, he said, "Sure, what do you pay?" And she's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, we can't pay anybody for anything." And he's like, "I don't work for free, you know." And it, right. somehow this this went viral and and was you know on all the social media. I mean, he was really angry about it, and uh, and I'm like that. You know, if 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 you write for a living, you write for a living. You know, I mean, what I do out of necessity is 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 make art, which is you know, fiction, um, occasionally essays that attain, to, you know, that strive for that level, but. Uh, Anything that can, you know, be published in a magazine, I'm, I'm doing that for pay, you know. Sure. So it's uh, the that money has disappeared. It, I mean, the, the money came from advertising, essentially, and advertising has, um, 
it no longer supports that work. So the Times has a very good online um, uh, existence. The New Yorker does, but I mean, the number of places that can actually pay you uh, are very, very few and hard to break into. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. What Death Taught Tarrant by Derek McFadden. Life is a journey. So is the afterlife. At the end of his life, Terrence McDonald must discover its meaning or he'll be banned from the afterlife forever and his soul will cease to exist. Join Terrence and those who love him on a poignant and unforgettable journey through a life at once wonderful and harrowing. Learn what Terrence learned. See what Terrence sees. By this provocative story's end, readers may even learn a thing or two about themselves. See why people are saying things like, Derek McFadden writes with an insight you can match. If you like the works of Mitch Album, I think you'll find What Death Taught Terrence a worthy addition to your library and the reading of it, a life-affirming journey. I found this story immediately immersive and it stuck with me long after I finished. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden on sale now. Well, Ray Bradbury uh, famously gave the advice to new writers uh, that you should write uh, a new short story every week and, you know, kind of tongue in cheek said, you know, because who can write 52 bad short stories in a row, um, you know, <laughs> over the course of a year. And and, and while great sort of advice. Like, uh, it's sort of like the ladies man approach to, uh, to you know, right. finding women in bars. Right, right. Yeah, you, you hit enough of them and finally somebody's going to respond. Exactly, exactly. Um, 
but you know, during you know, in the time that he wrote that, there was a market to publish short stories, and you know, you know, part of uh, of that strategy was to to have something publishable. Um, well, you know, there, there's not a, a great market to publish short stories anymore. There, there are a few markets, and there are people that are publishing anthologies and things like that that are looking for submissions. But, um, but not now, many. yeah, not many. Um, but now, if if a writer wants to break in, uh, the novel is the is the vehicle. Um, the agents now, uh, there are many agents who have told their writers that we will not. Um, have anything to do with your short stories. I mean, yeah. you know, in other words, we're not going to sell them. We're not going to pitch them to magazines. You know, they don't want to know from short stories because the publishing business doesn't want to know from short stories. And yet, every year, there are three or four very successful books of short stories. Right. So um, why this prejudice, I don't know. But I've been trying to publish a book of short stories uh, for 20 years. And each time I got, you know, you have to do a novel first. And, of course, it took me a hell of a long time between my first novel and my second novel, um, some of which I wasn't writing a, a, a fiction at all for some of those years. But, I mean, it still took a long time. So, you know, eventually I'm going to have 35 years worth of stories that I'm going to want to publish. And they don't want to know about it now even more than they didn't want to know about it then. So it's going to be hard. Short it's stories, crazy. you know, are... I, I, don't, I don't know... Uh, you know, there are there are a number of very good uh, literary journals, um, but you know their circulations are so very small. They they're often receiving more stories from, from they're they're receiving more submissions from writers than they have readers, um, and uh, and now they all use uh, uh, an automated submission system, so you don't know where it's going or who who's going to look at it or anything. It used to be you, if you knew who the editor was, you could send it. To the editor, and it might get screened by, uh, you know, an intern, or it might not. But um, you still, you felt like you were at least trying to right. uh, reach the right person. Now you don't really have that shot. Um, so it's a it's a rough rough deal. And I think people go to MFA programs. I, I did, but I mean, in in 1986. But I think people go. Um, now, just to have somebody can you know read and respond to their work, you know, I mean, it's like uh, because there's nobody out there otherwise. Right, right. Well, your your new novel that we're that's out everywhere today that that, um, uh, that we're talking about is is called Crazy Sorrow, and this book is uh, I alluded to it in the beginning is is a is a a grand journey um that that's the only way i can describe it that, that uh, of these characters and um and, and this window into these lives uh and i'm i'm fascinated vince with with how stories begin there there's a, a there's a certain magic that that no one has ever been able to to fully um you know comprehend exactly what happens in one moment nothing about crazy sorrow exists anywhere in the world and then you know either one of the characters walks onto the stage of your mind and and you start thinking well you know what is she up to and and you know how 
where is she going? And, uh, you know, it, it, and then George walks in and, uh, and, and meets Anna and then, mm-hmm. you know, and then in, in some form, crazy sorrow does exist. And then, you know, you as the writer, you know, start excavating the story and, and figuring mm-hmm. out who these characters are. What, what is that first moment of inspiration like for you? Hmm. I, I mean, I think it's very different. Um, uh, sometimes a line comes into my head. Uh, I, I, first of all, I've written two novels, and 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 they're radically different experiences uh, in doing so. Um, this novel started because I wanted to write about New York in the '70s, and I wanted particularly. I, I had gone to college at Columbia in the '70s, and I wanted to write about that scene in that world, and. Somehow I was inspired to, um, well, the, actually, no, there, were, there was another first scene which never made it into the book in which uh, they're in the dorm room. But soon after, there the, the came to me the idea of, of uh, being at the celebration of the bicentennial uh, in July 4th, 1976, which I was at. Um, down on a landfill that became Battery Park City in New York many years later. And the landfill was just like a big sandy uh, uh, stretch out into the Hudson River. And um, uh, it, it was later, there are wonderful, if you look it up, there are wonderful pieces in the Times and elsewhere about, about this beach that people are occupying down there. Um, and there was, uh, for two years, art exhibitions, they're called Art on the Beach, and people did performance and uh, conceptual art and piles of junk as art and all kinds of art. Um, but that night, it was where a million people went to watch these fireworks that were supposed to be the greatest fireworks of all time, because every year they're supposed to be the greatest fireworks of all time. But right. um, these, these were technologically somehow advanced. And uh, there were uh, 110 sailing ships in the harbor with their masts all bare because they they had sailed up the hudson that day and were now uh at, at anchor in the harbor and um and there were the fireworks and looming behind us the two towers black at night they were and um somehow that was the scene and um and I think I've, I always knew I wanted to write a, a novel in which New York was one of the characters. And I think that's what I've done here. I mean, it takes place over 40 years. It goes from 76 to 2016. And as you say, there are these two main characters, George and Anna. And and when it started, George, you know, I knew that he was going to meet a girl that night, you know, as I was working it out and starting writing it. But I had written a short story about Anna that is now a chapter of the book and I suddenly realized she's the girl you know um, although the short story was later in her life a few years later um, so uh, that's how you know the, so it, it's a it's a kind of sedimentary process or evolution or you know it's either the way water wears away stone or the way stone accumulates in water, but it's it's something gradual that happens um, when you're working on a novel where it accrues 
meaning and the characters begin to emerge, their identities begin to emerge. Uh, and I, I'm a very big believer that you can't decide what they're going to do. They have to decide what they're going to do. I'm a big advocate of free will uh, in uh, life and in art. Um, Michelangelo has these marvelous sequence of sculptures called the Prisoners, which you can see in the uh, Academia in Florence, where they have the David. But in the corridor leading up is, are these astonishing statues of these twisted figures emerging from the stone. And it was Michelangelo's demonstration that the figure, he believed the figure resided in the stone. You discover the figure in the stone. You're not just carving away the stone to make the figure you have in mind. And I think for me, uh, that has always been a very instructive idea for fiction, that the character is discovered. And uh, and emerges and then and has movement and will um, uh, on their they have movement and will on their own um, and so that's what happens you know so I, I had I had the night of the bicentennial and I had the fireworks and I had the, twi- the towers which come in and out of the book uh, a number of times and are featured on the cover. And are you know the books being released on the twentieth in tandem with the twentieth anniversary of their fall. Um, so you know that's what I had to work with. And then there's just there you know there are a lot of char- there were two other characters who had main narrative lines that I've had to. Uh, they're still in the story, but they're only there as incidental friends and acquaintances. They're, they don't have their own sections now the way they did so there's like 200 pages that didn't even make it in there but it's nevertheless a 400 page book so uh you know then it was just a matter of and i never knew where the hell i was going i didn't know where it was going to end (laughs) i didn't know anything so it's it's uh it it's it's like you know those prisoners carving their way out of you know prison with you know stolen spoons you um... tunneling tunneling out Right, right. Um, you alluded to um, the fact that that you wanted to uh, to to make New York a character in the book, and mm-hmm. and I was going to say earlier there are actually three main characters in the book. There's George, Anna, and New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and New York Thank you. is absolutely prominent in the book, and um, I I wondered if uh, the book coming out when it when it does. Uh, if there was a connection in your mind to the anniversary of the of the twin towers falling and you know when we're recording this we're we're a couple of days uh, uh you know before the anniversary mm-hmm. and this show is going to come out a couple of days after um but you know, when you're writing this and you know you're thinking of new york in the 70s and you're thinking of that scene and and the fireworks and the the towers, which are black, you know, at night in the background, uh, and now looking at what is now um, the World Trade Center area, and the those towers are are now gone, and they've been replaced with uh, with a single tower, and and the whole landscape has changed. Um, how did that change of landscape um, seep into the story and affect the characters? Oh. I think the, the change seeped into me. 
And I would have been happy to publish it on the 13th anniversary of the fall of the towers. <laughs> I didn't need, uh, I didn't have any requirement in my mind to take so long. Um, I had it in the book first in 2018, and uh, and the editor I had at the time said, there's too many characters, there's too much stuff going on, you got to trim it back to just George and Anna, and, uh, you know, come back and see me in a year. And um, he had moved on by that time, so there was yet another editor I handed into who took a while to read it, and then he, you know, he said, okay, we're going to try and publish this uh, in September of next year, it was 2020, um, September next year to, you know, coincide with the 20th anniversary. And I was very surprised because, you know, I had become a more obscure uh, literary personage than I had been when I published my first book uh, 18 years ago. And um, uh, so getting a September publishing date, you know, you cover the business, you know, September is the big, big month. Sure. And I was shocked, shocked. I expected to be moved to, you know, February 2nd, Groundhog's Day. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and suddenly it's a September pub date and I was thrilled. Um, but so I, it was the, the anniversary was not in my mind. The towers have been in my mind. Uh, uh, I was in New York on September 11th and I was uh, uh, downtown at 23rd street when the second tower fell and I was watching it. And, um, uh, it was an event that has never, uh, Faded, become less vivid. It has never been resolved. It, it's it's um, it's huge, and it's funny. I was just talking to a bartender the other day. I stopped in and had a drink and, a, and an appetizer before an appointment, and uh, and it turned out he was um, over in Jersey taking pictures for a Jersey paper. And um, his editor said, we're a local paper. We're not, this is an international story. We're not gonna, and and the, he never got the film back and he never saw it. And he got choked up talking about that day. Wow. And here it was nearly 20 years later. So it never fades. It just never fades if you were here and it was your city at the time. Um, so I knew they were there, you know, I mean, I knew that that was, you know, one of the uh, 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 stones on which, you know, this was going to be hung. Um, but I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I just knew, I just kept going forward in time with these characters and their lives. And, um, and finally I was done. <laughs> Right, Vince, so when someone um, is reading Crazy Sorrow and they get to the end and they they close that back cover, what do you hope they're left with? What 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 part, or what about Crazy Sorrow, uh, or uh, you know about Anna, George, their stories, their lives? What do you think? What do you hope people are left with? And and what part? of these characters of this story, do you hope that they carry forward with them? Well, I, I know from experience of writing the first novel that the things that stand out to people and that is vivid for them and they remember is, is all radically different. I'm always surprised, like, wow, I didn't, I don't remember that. You know, like, like 
you know, I'll never forget the moment when so-and-so did so-and-so in your book. And I'm like, really? I, I, I forgot it. You know, I mean, um, so I don't have a particular um, sense. I, I think there's, there's one very dramatic thing that happens in the book. Uh, and that is, of course, on September 11, 2001. But other than that, I don't have a sense that, the, that uh, uh, there's any one thing I, or two things or three things I want people to hold on to. I, by the time I finished the book and had worked on it uh, with the editor and been tortured by the publishing process, um, but as I came to know the book in that settled way, that it's not how you know it when you're writing it and even when you're finishing it, um, my hope for it was that someone would find it beautiful. Crazy Sorrow is available everywhere now when you're hearing this. Uh, there's going to be links to it in the show notes where you can grab it on Amazon or Audible uh, or go visit your local bookstore and grab the hardcover for yourself. And And uh, this is a book that you'll want to, you know, on your shelf for for years to come and to, to share it with people. Uh, this is a story that that will become part of you. I just know it will. Um Vince, what what do you think about the audiobook? Have you have you heard any any um I will be given I will be given the audio files on the release date, I'm told. But I heard from the actor who read it. He wrote to me, which was very nice, um, and uh, wrote to tell me that he thought the book was in fact beautiful. Wow. So I, I've, that was I've, that was nice. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and and he was, you know, he, he was very enthusiastic about it and wants to tell all of his friends about it and everything. And and you know, this guy reads books for a living. So right. um I said to him, you know, how'd you manage all those sex scenes? And uh <laughs> he said they had like a beat. I, I didn't have a problem with them. I'm like, okay, good. because I, I, I expected to hear complaints about this, but um, uh, you know, but you know, it's forty years and two grown-ups' lives are going to have sex. I mean, and sex is going to be part of the meaning of their lives right. and who they are. So it's not really. It seemed to me never uh, escapable. Um, <clears throat> but you know, some may say it's too much. And that narrator is Gibson Fraser. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, if. If you've listened to any of other books narrated by Gibson Fraser, this uh, this should fall right in line with with your expectations there. Um, I I love to you know I get a lot of books, uh, you know pre release arcs uh, from publishers, and there are a lot of books that then come out in audio, um, you know on, on pub day, and I'll go listen to the audio as well, um, just because I, I want to get a different experience with the book, and uh, I can't wait till this is released. So you know Gibson well. Fraser's. Uh, I, I do know his work. I, I oh, do. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. I've never listened to an audiobook, um, except uh, my. I, I have a twelve-year-old son now by second marriage, but uh, I had three sons earlier, and um, there was a series uh, called Redwall with this Northern English yes. guy with a terax and a you know, <laughs> so, and we used to listen to this in the car. They were great. I mean, it was really great. I love that. But that's the only audio books I've ever heard was the Redwall series. Oh, what, well, you definitely need to read uh, or to listen to, to Crazy Sorrow when it comes out. 
Oh, I'd sure. like to. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I take it. I mean, maybe I can, you know, maybe I, maybe I can get, <laughs> maybe I'll be hiding under the bed shaking. I don't know. Right, right. Well, you know, there may be some scenes that you'll want to fast forward through, you know, uh, but that's um, Crazy Sorrow available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, go grab it today. Links to it in, are in the show notes or go visit your local bookstore and grab it there. Vince, if people are just discovering you and, and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they connect with you online? Oh, I, I have a website now. By God. Um, it's called VincePassaro.com and I can be reached uh, uh, via the contact page there. Uh, there's some uh, other of my work you can link to, um, and you know there's uh, links for the book. I- I'm signing copies on Friday for sale uh, uh, online. Uh, not online exactly. There's a beautiful independent bookstore in New York called Three Lives and Company, and uh, they're going to be selling signed copies of the book. If you look Fantastic. up their website, uh, the information about how to contact them to get one is there three lives.com um and there are other links on the web so vincepassaro.com is how to find me excellent we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well vince this has been so much fun chatting uh we're sending everyone to pick up their copy of crazy sorrow today thank you thank you so much for taking time to come on the show you've been great thanks so much now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from richard glebe's the jason crane series He led Jason to a small bistro. The door set tiny bells to chime as they entered. The place shivered with smells. Coffee, hot chocolate, and croissants. This, he said, extending his arm towards a woman in an apron, is Jennifer. She makes the best scones and is tragically spoken for. He kissed the woman's hand. She was plump in her fifties. She had left one curler to dangle at the back of her head this morning. If it's a tragedy to you, this is the first I've heard of it. She swatted at him with a menu. Why didn't you speak up twenty years ago, lady killer? Jason sat. Jennifer put a glass of water in front of him. And who is this fine gentleman? This, said Hedwick, joining, is my son's great-grandfather's great-great-nephew. That's a lot of greats. Any great-great-great-whatever of Hedwick is great by me. She giggled at her own wit. I'll be back for your orders. Hedwick swatted her rear end with a menu as she left. He made small talk about the bistro, the specials, what was good, the Benedict, or not so, the hanger steak. When their orders came, coffee for both, eggs for Jason, a scone for himself, he got down to business. I met your grandmother about, oh, a year ago. Valerie and I have a mutual interest in old families, particularly old families related to the legend, for obvious reasons. Valerie's lived in Terrytown for years, though her family's up near Boston. Now don't worry, I don't believe all that nonsense about a headless horseman. Valerie's the superstitious one. But the Van Brunts are definitely the family in Irving's story. Hermanus Van Brunt and his wife Agatha were farmers in the village back in 1780 or so, This was during the Revolution. Hermanus grabbed title to lands left by a Tory family who'd been tarred and feathered and shipped back to Britain. Do you know your history? Sure, Tory, loyal to the king. Benjamin Franklin broke with his own son who was a Tory. Smart boy. Traitors to the cause. And that was serious business. The British marched straight through here during the war. 
chase George Washington off Manhattan and out to New Jersey. And after they were kicked out again, a lot of Tories were kicked out with them. Anyway, the Van Brunts took over some farmland north of Terrytown. They had a son, Abraham, and, of course, their son Abraham married a wealthy heiress. Katrina Van Tassel. Yes, all that is true. It's public record, just like the legend says. My mother left behind quite a few documents written by Abraham Van Brunt, Brahm, in Dutch mostly. He was powerful around here. With Katrina's money, he became the biggest stone merchant in the state. He died in 1850. After him, it's Dylan Van Brunt, his son, Joseph, the grandson, then Cornelius, then... Sorry, genealogy is not my thing. No? Why was Eliza doing research on the Van Brunts? She wasn't. She was looking into the cranes. That's what made us such fast friends. I don't get it. We do go back a ways, your family and mine. More coffee? Jennifer appeared at Jason's elbow. Hedwick nodded and she poured. Still not getting it, said Jason. But he did. Hedwick turned to the waitress and Jason knew what he would say. My lady, may I present? He raised his coffee cup, proclaiming, The last descendant of Ichabod Crane. <laughs>